all week long, if I'm honest, I have felt the desire to pause our forward motion. Um, I'm in a pretty intense rhythm as a preacher, as we do. Like Monday morning, I'm already deep into the text for the following Sunday and was, was just very unable this week to move past, I think, where we have just come from. So I decided we might interrupt our flow a little bit and just remain here in this moment just long enough to acknowledge perhaps again the size and the scope of what was said in here last week. Now everything we always, everything is always preserved online, so you don't miss anything, you just gotta catch it later on Facebook or YouTube or uh, my favorite way is just Spotify, look up the podcast. But I don't know that it's quite time to move on. You see, ang- anger is real, and I think I've waited my whole life for someone to say it's okay to feel in church, right? And healing is going to depend on whether we can feel it fully or not. And it helps to name it as a community. It helps that the work that the team up here does to name it, it helps begin that work. But if I'm honest, it's ultimately still going to need to be your work. You're going to have to name what rises in you around these losses and these things. So I'm curious how you've been processing the anger that you may be feeling around the spiritual trauma that you survived, that you suffered in the organized church growing up. And I will invite you to name some of those, those things in, in a minute, so hang on a second. Before we get there, and this is a little parenthetical, I'm gonna stall a tiny bit, as I've been told would be a wise idea, to allow those of you who process internally a minute to sort of get your thoughts so that you can benefit uh, by gathering your thoughts before we sort of open the floor. But meanwhile, so we're gonna get to that in a second, but meanwhile, think about this. Anger, if acknowledged and welcomed, will definitely in time become grief, right? Which is where I think we're headed. Because beyond grief lies that new freedom. It lies, beyond grief will be some acceptance, maybe new possibilities, release. I like to call it a whole new world. That just sounds exciting. And man, does my heart crave that new world. I wonder about you. Is this mic dropping? It might keep dropping. It's not? Okay. What an awkward time to mention the mic. Am I speaking figuratively or rhetorically or literally? Where was I here? Somewhere, I gotta just find the word bougie. Bougie's always where I fall back to. <laughs> if you don't know that joke, uh, never mind. It was a bad joke the first time, and it was worse the third and fourth time, so. But man, does my heart crave the new world that lies just beyond anger and grief in that, in that space of freedom. And I don't have to be an expert in any of this, right, in the subjects of anger and grief to set the table for us to begin to do this healing work together. I don't. In fact, I wholeheartedly reject the idea that I have to be an expert in anything in order to experience healing as a human being, and then perhaps to bring others along with me in significant and subtle ways. Friends, we are co-survivors, and therefore on our way to becoming co-healers, as was said last week. And as you just need to know, that those were not my words. Those were Carissa Ray's words. But I feel like the moment she mentioned them to the preaching team last week, they landed and sort of took on a home in my heart. Co-survivors becoming co-healers. That's what a healing community can look like if we let it. The blessed community, as the African-American church likes to call the church itself, doesn't actually have to be a pairing of expert and apprentice, of leader and follower. There's something far better, and the best word I can think of to describe it is just simply interdependence. Co-survivors becoming co-healers together. It sounds to me like the future. And I'm just going to go on record and say, it's the future of ANC. This is where we're going. So hold tight. We're almost to the open mic part. Trey's got the mic all ready to go. You know, despite what you were probably taught growing up, being angry is okay. It's part of healing. It's part of being human. I know we were taught it wasn't nice, but I wonder if that was really 
about anger or if it was just mostly about the inconvenience or the discomfort of showing up emotionally in our family systems. Well, now you can assign feelings to your feelings, to quote my good friend Candace, if that's what you want to do. And you can get yourself all wrapped around that axle if that's what you want to do. I only do that 10 times a day, right? Or you can just be with your feelings and let them pass through you. You see, no feeling is final, as Rilke, the great German poet, wrote. No feeling is final. Now, I'm not great at this. I'm not an expert at this, but I'm getting better. And that's actually something that I'm able to celebrate in my own life. The gospel to me these days sounds something like this. I don't actually have to be great at everything, and neither do you. Sometimes I can take a step back and say, well, I guess I haven't learned that yet, as Shauna Nyquist wrote in the book by that same title. I guess I haven't learned this yet. There's freedom in that statement for me, truly. Well, it turns out my feelings remind me that I'm alive, and so anger is part of that. And I allowed a little bit of my mad to leak out this week to people that I love, and they were shocked, but it was healthy at the same time because it wasn't the final thing that I thought or felt about that conversation or about that subject, you see. It was just part of allowing the trauma to pass through me without getting stuck, and that's where the problems begin is when all of that energy gets stuck. All that to say... All week I felt reluctant to push too far ahead if that means we have to hurry past the work of anger and grief related to what we have lost, to what was stolen, to what was withheld from us, to what was hidden, to what was always kept just out of reach for some of us for whatever that reason may have been. Friends, so whatever time you need to be in this moment of anger, I want you to take it. And if recovering from spiritual trauma feels like the next big adventure that you're going on and you'd like the support of a gifted therapist, I have a good friend here in town, and this is becoming her specialty, recovering from spiritual trauma. For the record, anytime you're going to set out on a good adventure, always take a good therapist with you. That's for free. That's just for free, Brian. I'm just going to give that to you for free. So last week, we walked into the deep end a little bit by talking about the ways that the church has failed to acknowledge the women who were called around Jesus to be disciples and apostles. And maybe we begin there again today with an open mic, perhaps. Uh, to our gender-fluid, gender-nonconforming, gender-nonbinary siblings, we also want to hear your voice on this too. And I do wonder how you experience the reality of this. But we'll open the mic for that too. And men, if you're in the room listening to me today, I know that the boxes that you were put in were also damaging to you, but today, let's give space to the voices that have been historically silenced. We'll have a different day where we can tell how all of this damaged us as well. Okay, you ready, Trey? The mic is open. The floor is yours for your voice. Here's my questions for you. In what ways are you angry, and in what ways are you grieving? Or you might think of it this way, what are the things that you have been waiting to speak out loud? We're here to hold witness with you today. I see a hand back there. Should take these mints out of my pocket. That's annoying. Y'all maybe just bring the lights up on the crowd if you want sure. for this. Um, I've been thinking this week about uh, what elements of Jesus we didn't have accurately described because we don't have the writings of women. And I also understand a lot of women didn't write then, so that's a sadness in its own. But um, it's felt really two-dimensional to me mm -hmm. that there's an emotional depth that I think is just missing from our Bible. And that's really, that grieving has turned into um, yeah. hundreds of years of women's voices we haven't heard mm -hmm. and a history we have experienced in a two-dimensional way. Yeah. 
we hold witness with that. Thanks, Britta. With you. Mac, can you give me some monitor on his mic? Because I'm having a hard time hearing what they're saying. Thank you. Technical little thing there. Who else? I think something I feel angry about is I've had to find my voice and my place and my power, as cheesy as that can sound, outside of the church. Yeah. Because people outside of the church are more open to the fact that I have those things and it's very isolating when you want to feel at home in the church but you feel more seen and acknowledged and, and wanted outside of the church. Yes, Reagan, we hold witness with that sadness with you today. Thank you. I think it's fun to go from extreme to extreme just so he gets his calories in, just gets his, gets his uh, cardio in today. Yes. Being in an evangelical church and mm -hmm. taught to be the submissive wife yeah. when the husband left anyway mm. because we didn't have the perfect marriage. And I'm very angry that the church doesn't know how to address family and broken mm. families well. Yeah. Thank you for that. We hold witness to that. We are angry with you for that in so many ways. Someone else? Yes. I'm sorting through a fair amount of trying to separate the conversion therapy that was forced on many of us. Which was just trash with like, is the Bible also trash? <laughs> Thanks, Jen. Anybody else? Sorry. Um, Don't be. I think that along the lines of um, being a submissive wife, but more of having to grieve what I was told a marriage looks like mm -hmm. and that might not be what my marriage looks like and having to process through, um, well, this is what I know marriage should be. What does marriage look like if that's not for me? Um, and not seeing queer, healthy relationships right. because I was told that that was wrong. So many layers to that. Thank you. We're not in a rush, guys. It's raining out there, and the cowboys are not in it. So, <laughs> I learned in Shakespeare class many years ago when things get really hot, comic relief will help people <laughs> process. So you can always count on me for that. Someone else? Yes. Um, I'll choose my words carefully with the audience we have, but um, I've been processing what purity culture did to me. Yes. <laughs> um, just related to the weight and the shame and the inequity of that. Yeah. And then coming to terms with who I am as a woman and what I want. Mm -hmm. And suddenly that's okay in this environment, but it's not. And then that balance even within marriage, it's just, whew, yeah. it's tangled. <laughs> um, and wanting to make sure that 
as we raise our son, how do we raise him in a different, even being male, but just mm -hmm. how do we untangle that for the future? <sighs> Thank you. I see Christina's head bobbing off her shoulders back there, right behind you. Busted. Mm. I hate speaking on a microphone. This is a big moment. Um, the, the anger and grief it would not be appropriate for me to share with my two young sons here, but if I can share um, a bit of hopefulness and optimism. Um, so we moved here a, a few years ago from California. Sorry. We love Cal <laughs> Stop it. We love Californians in Austin. I'm sorry. It's Texas, close your ears for a second. It's half the reason Austin's cool. That, there you go. I went on oh, record. Oh, it's okay. so awful. There's right, so right. many Teslas here now. I'm really, yeah. really sorry. Um, <laughs> but the, the church that we found in Los Angeles, which was a, a huge step for me to go back into a church community, mm -hmm. um, I wanted my sons to experience the, the benefits of right. that. And one day, the, my son, who's 11 now, he was about nine? No, seven maybe. Um, Gosh, for somebody who hates talking on a microphone, I'm taking a long time. Sorry. Yeah. His Sunday school teacher came up to us after and said, I need to talk to you about Cooper, which is never a good sign. And she said, we were talking about the disciples, and he asked why there weren't any women, and that if Jesus was alive today, he thought that there would be women. When and he was seven? When he was seven. I know who I'm voting for when he's, 20, <laughs> when he's 25. <laughs> He's um, on his way, yeah. And so just a, a message of hope that this generation understands. They do understand. And, um, yeah, thank I love you. that. I celebrate that remarkable awareness in such a young soul. Guys, uh, before we teach them to not trust themselves, we ought to listen closely. Kids are not going to take this back to where we just came through. They're not going back to the 1950s. I don't care what talk radio is telling you. It's not going to happen. So I love that optimism. Yeah. Anyone else? These are sacred and holy moments, y'all. We have to redefine preaching. Preaching doesn't come from the center of a room. Preaching is the work of the people. And so if you're terrified at what happens next, just you're going to be fine. Yes. Um, hi. So... Um I grew up in the capital of the Confederacy in Richmond, Virginia, mm. and uh, the intersection of being a woman and being a brown person mm. and growing up in a Southern Baptist church that was very traditional. Um, my experience ranged from polite isolation all the way to outright ostracism. Yeah. And so there was a dichotomy between my personal relationship with a God who found me to mm. be perfect versus the community yep. that always told me that I was an other. Mm. And that has been, uh, it has been, it, it's not yet over, that, that learning and unlearning process has not mm -hmm. um, finished yet. Yeah. And uh, so that's something that I've just been uh, very tender. <laughs> it, it pokes the tender places yeah. and uh, also kind of influences my, um, my journey as yeah. a Christ follower. Yeah. Every one of these is a form of prayer. Every one of these truths that we're naming is 
I'm going to consider it prayer. Anyone else? Yeah. Oh, I hate talking into my crowd. Um, <laughs> in my first marriage, being in an, an emotionally abusive marriage mm-hmm. and being told by the church that not I needed to keep my eyes on God or myself or my well-being, but I needed to keep my eyes on my husband. Mm-hmm. And if I left that situation, I could never get married again, have mm-hmm. more kids. I would basically just be doomed. What an extraordinary group of people you are. Thank you, Trey. You're pretty extraordinary, too. What an extraordinary moment we're in. My early years in the Pentecostal church, people would throw their sermons out and just go all day on whatever on the regular, but not quite inspired to do that, but let me just tell you this. Open up the tent curtains of your heart for anger and grief because there's no way through it except through it. And it has to go through you in order for it to not get stuck. And stuck looks like a lot of things, um, ranging from disease to total body breakdown to explosive... Stuck energy is just not what it's supposed to do. And so my encouragement to you is give it the, welcome it to breakfast as a good, of mine, a good friend of mine says. Just welcome it to breakfast. Sit with it. So many untruths were told us. And they were always wrapped with, this is what God thinks. So who, who bucks that? Who pushes against that? Oh, well, take your time with that, okay? Promise me. Can I see a few heads nod? Promise me. And whatever therapeutics, I don't believe in biblical counseling or pastoral counseling. I can't help you. I can, I can connect you. I got a pocket full of, of, of people I refer people to, and I believe deeply in the work they do. We've got five or six therapists in our church that you probably don't even know who they are. Um, I can't biblically counsel you through the wounds and how to find healing. What I can do is I can go through and I can figure out how to be whole and drop some crumbs and maybe that will help be part of your journey. But if your heart is pounding and you're aware that you're beginning to open something that really needs attention, do that in the company of good clinical help. And I will help you find people who will do that. I ask them on the regular, do you have capacity for more clients? We keep certain little counseling agencies open just our congregation alone, it feels like, because... Because I'm, I am not going to, um, I, I'm not going to be dishonest with you. It's, it's, it has saved my soul on so many occasions, and so I just want to put that out there. All right, here goes a transition. Ready? Wait a minute. Oh yes, some up from, some from online. I think that's wise. I have a couple from online. <clears throat> um, one was Dana Williams, who was here last week. I'm angry that I felt needed to shrink myself. My my gifts and my voice into a box of who I was supposed to be. Mm. All of those things now feel like they should be more developed in me than they are. Mm. And then Linda Miranda added, um, 
As a mom of a non-binary child, I'm angry that their love of God fell away in many ways because they couldn't see themselves in church. Angry that I was essentially expected to choose God or my child. Dana is a board member of ours and Linda Miranda is a dear out-of-towner part of our community. So we hold those dear. Okay. Sometimes you just got to put the clutch in and grind the gears. So here we go. You ready, Scott? We're going to do this. So we've been working our way to the Sermon on the Mount now for several weeks, and it, that's what Epiphany is about. And as I've said, it's a deep dive into the life. Maybe take a deep breath. I didn't even, I didn't even take a deep breath. I just started reading. Just it's a deep dive into the life of, of Jesus and, and what it means to the broader world, as we know from the story of the wise men and how that all begins. And while we talk about Jesus in this little house almost every single Sunday, if not every single Sunday, sitting again with the unfolding of his life from birth to annunciation to baptism to the calling of his disciples, when you put it all together, it begins to set a table for us to sit with the teachings, right, the things that he taught, which begin in earnest with something that we call the Sermon on the Mount or his Discourse from a Hillside. And I think in a minute, I hope that you see why we continue to move forward. Just, there's just an undeniable thing in this text, I think, that, that is what we need to hear today. So going up a mountain and bringing down some new instructions for life almost certainly would have summoned deep memories in the people around Jesus, memories of Moses, none other. Remember when he went up a mountain and he came down with something important, you would know those as the Ten Commandments. And that's how the identity of the people of Israel came to be that changed human civilization forever. Someone always goes up a mountain and comes down enlightened, right? It's a story that repeats over and over. And we're going to need to be careful, though, is here's my warning for us, as we look at these quote-unquote instructions, lest we misunderstand them altogether. And the lectionary guides our attention today, on this Sabbath day, to Matthew 5 and what we call the Beatitudes. And so let me read them to us, and then let's see what we see together. Matthew 5, verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. In verse 2, it says this. And he began to speak, and he taught to them, saying... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. That's a lost word. We're not sure what that means anymore. I'm sure we can get to it if we try. But blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, writes Matthew. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of false or all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Beatitudes, the opening of Jesus' iconic sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, for context, things began to happen quickly for Jesus at this point in his ministry, living now by the lake or the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. And the disciples were, 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 were called to him, and we have lots of speculation about who that was. And then lots and lots and lots of miracles began to be performed. And before too long, people began to wonder to themselves, who is this man from Nazareth? And what did it mean that he, sent, that he spent his time with the forgotten and the voiceless, with the sick and the tormented and the oppressed and the outsiders? What did it mean? And when people start asking hard questions like that, eventually they get to questions like this. Where is God? Or what is God like? 
And once you start to feed those questions, now you're on a path that will eventually take you to sound to questions that sound a little bit like this. Which one of us has God's favor? Who of us is blessed by God? That's a perennial human concern, I think we all can admit. And Jesus begins to answer that very question with this unlikely list of experiences or life states that he calls blessed, which is shocking if you look closely enough. Some read this as a list of of the ways that we should act in order to incur or earn or achieve the blessings of God, which I'm afraid, friend, might miss this point altogether if we're not careful. Now, imagery of a, of a wise man walking up a mountain to bring down a list of requirements with him notwithstanding, this isn't a list of requirements by which God somehow is forced to approve of us or how we might achieve God's blessings. No, no. I understand the need to know that, right? But this is not that, as Catherine loves to say. The Beatitudes are not a list of entrance requirements to get into the kingdom that Matthew loves to describe. These aren't commands or imperatives, even if some have read them that way, even if that's the only way we ever heard them read. I don't believe this is Jesus commanding his disciples to become poor or meek or to somehow get themselves more persecuted so that God might bless them. This is an announcement, friend, that if you find yourself in one of these places, you are not forgotten, you are not unseen. You are not left behind. You have not been abandoned. In other words, embrace yourself for this because it's supposed to make your mind explode and your heart expand. In other words, friends, there are no human states of being that are not already blessed by God. I wonder if you heard that. Let that find its way deep into your body if you're ready to accept it. There are no lost states, no dark places too remote or inaccessible to be considered places where God's blessing cannot reach. There is nothing beyond love and divine acceptance, friend. Nothing. Which would have been a revolutionary message to anyone who saw the world as divided, right? In this dualistic partition. Anyone who understood the world as light and dark, as good and bad, as desirable as, and undesirable, as blessed and cursed. Anyone who saw the world or who sees the world that way would hear these words and wonder. Friend, if Jesus taught us anything It was that the way we divided the world to feel safe and to better understand it was in dire need of a software update. Look again at the places that we thought God's blessing could not be found. Look again, friend. Look now through your tears if you are able and tell me what you see. But our hearts can scarcely hear a gospel this wonderful. So instead, we read these shocking announcements as a list of to-dos, as in things we must aspire to and achieve so that God can get, so that we can get the benefits and the good stuff. And so here's what we do with it if we're not careful. We read this list and we say, well, I want to see the kingdom of heaven, sure. And we say, well, I sure want to be comforted, of course I do. And then, gosh, who doesn't want to inherit the earth, right? Of course I'd like to be filled. Emptiness isn't great, I mean... And I'll be needing some mercy at some point. And who doesn't want to see God and think of the books I could write if I could? And for sure, God, call me child of God. I'll take that. And bring me this kingdom of heaven thing. I'm here for that too. That's how we read it. We want this stuff. Who does it? So we calculate. Well, then what do we have to do to get it? You see where this goes. 
well, it doesn't sound like a lot of fun, but I guess I'm going to need to somehow have a poor spirit or be poor in spirit, I guess, which means I'll need to figure out how to mourn, which doesn't sound fun, and quickly develop some meekness, whatever that is, Googling meekness, right? Which no doubt has something to do with hunger and thirst, which isn't very American. So let's you and I just hope that that was a metaphor, And I'll need to master showing mercy, that sounds doable enough, while naturally becoming pure in heart, which sort of doesn't sound doable, that is. And peace, I mean, I guess I can figure out how to make that, checking YouTube for DIY vids on peace. And all of this must be done while somehow being willing to be persecuted, which I'm going to pretend he didn't mention because no, just flat no to that, being falsely accused, that's not good boundaries, that's not okay. But friends, these aren't commandments. Nope. Why do we always try to make a list of commandments when Jesus is simply trying to gently, tenderly describe the good life? We miss the real announcement when we treat these as requirements to please God. Friend, connect this sermon now back to Matthew's big picture and the purpose that he wrote to begin with. Jesus is introducing us to this astonishing, embodied nearness of God, or what he, Matthew, will call the kingdom come near in Greek, or the circle of mutual empowerment, as we like to say in Ireland, or simply the good road, as the First Nations translation describes, to which I say, hang on a second now, pause, pause. We've missed something, something super important. And I would ask you to look around you now, and not just at the people sitting next to you. No, no, look deeper, look deeper. Look at the assumptions upon which you built your whole life. Can you feel that now, that unraveling? of a version of Christianity that was taught to you that no longer holds? What am I talking about? What is this unraveling you're talking about, preacher? Oh, just the belief that we messed up everything down here and that Jesus had no choice but to come and die a gruesome public death so that God could somehow unlearn hate and rage and fury and disgust and that we could only access good things by being flawless, taking the list and living up to it. That's the unraveling I'm talking about. We used to call that penal substitutionary atonement in seminary, which is as dumb as it sounds. Don't bother yourself with it. And that's not what I, at all what I see anymore, friend. There was a holy reminding that happened in the life and teaching of Jesus, no doubt, but it wasn't about Jesus reminding God how to love us. It was about us being reminded of our truest nature hear me, of the astonishing embodied nearness of God that was never not already true for here and for everyone, even in the places we thought God had surely abandoned us. Friends, even those places are blessed by God, teaches Jesus. What am I trying to say on a rainy Sunday morning? The bottom line is this, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn it, friend, or even to fix it, hear me clearly, Jesus came to remind us where God was already active and engaged everywhere, perhaps especially in the hard places. Friends, I hope you're ready to reimagine everything now. If your baseline assumption is that we destroyed something because someone wanted to be more enlightened by eating an apple, which of course we were taught required God to murder God's child in order to repair what we destroyed, if this is what you believed about the world, then Jesus should have opened his public ministry describing an updated list of things that God required in order to be loved. But that's not what we have. Remember, man goes up a mountain and comes down with a list. Yeah, but it's not that kind of list, friend. He's doing something far more tender if we can hear it. And I so, so want to hear it now. 
He starts by reminding us that nowhere is technically not already blessed by God. Friends, I don't see a list of grievances here. This isn't a new list of requirements. Jesus' opening statement is a reminder to call nothing cursed, call no one forgotten, call no one abandoned by God. Friend, as Chris says, everything is held and has always been held. So I guess it's time for an update. And why does any of this matter? What am I trying to say? Well, it matters because we divide the world in ways that ought not be divided, which wouldn't be the end of the proverbial world if we didn't also do that with ourselves. Now, look deeply inside. You see, we split and splinter and label and categorize our inner worlds until we got it all perfectly organized in boxes labeled acceptable and unacceptable, things to be proud of and things to be ashamed of. And then Jesus, friend, then Jesus goes up a mountain comes back to us with something that we can barely believe. Oh, someone tell me I'm not just talking to myself this morning. Something about our brain prefers to categorize and divide, calling some things good and other things unacceptable, some things blessed and other things cursed. And so here's what I do with these sorts of things. I look inside and I take my own inventory like this. I do this to myself. With these poor and these limited parts, yep, I exile those. The parts that weep, endlessly falling to pieces, the parts that have been in tears now for years, banish those. I don't love looking for those. The parts that feel too small to stand up and speak for themselves, I'm ashamed of those too. The hungry and the thirsty parts, well, I learned to erase those a long time ago because it's just not cool to have needs, you know. The parts that require mercy even to look at them because they make me so angry, yeah, you'll find those buried under layers and layers of shame. No, correct that. Buried under a manhole cover of shame. And whatever you do, do not move the manhole cover. The dark parts that feel anything but pure, let them go. Just nope, don't look there. The parts that thrive on drama and struggle and fighting, the defensive parts, don't mention those either. We're going to pretend those don't exist too. Just call that exiled. And finally, the parts that are mad and hurt and wounded because others misunderstood me, because others chased me and jeered and mocked and belittled, those parts are ferocious and they're angry. Correction, they're on fire. Don't even ask to see them. You'll regret you did. Straight into exile. That's where I send those non-ideal parts just like the church taught me to do because they don't seem to square with how I think God thinks of me. How can these parts be blessed? Except, as you well know, none of those parts actually go away. Exile is not permanent and it doesn't extinguish life. They are very much still there. They're right here actually, where they belong. You're aware, I'm certain, by now, that here is all there actually is. There is no there, technically. There is only a holy here. There is nothing else. And what, pray tell, might it mean if here to us feels cursed and forgotten and dead and exiled? What then? What have we done wrong is the question we asked. Where did we blow it? Oh, friends, tell me I'm not the only one who worries about that to which Jesus gently, tenderly replies, sweet child, exactly none of this stuff is antithetical to my blessing, to God's favor, to love. And somehow inside I want to scream because what the actual heck are we supposed to do with that? Update, beloved friend. Software update. Now you want to know where spiritual trauma begins? with organizations and institutions and structures and systems and policies and procedures that encourage and require that we exile the parts of us that don't comply with their external expectations. That's where it begins.
breaks our insides. It injures our bodies and our brains, and it's a lot to survive. We can. We so can. We were made to, but it's not quick work, and we can't do it alone. And all of this makes me angry, which if I allow that anger to pass through me, it will in time, good friend, lead me to grief once whatever is beneath that anger is healed. And what I'm learning is that grief is work that can be deferred for a while, but only for a season. Friend, grief will not go undone if it has to commandeer our physical bodies to be heard. It's exactly what it will do. Friends, there are no places that aren't already blessed by God. Can your heart even stand to be alive, to be alive in a world that good? You never did a thing or said a thing or thought a thing or wrote a thing or stood up on your two feet for a thing that made love love you any more than it already did. I wonder, can you hear that? All parts of you have always been held by God completely. What good news today.